Hi, I'm Chris Spizak, and this is the Words You Should Know podcast. Welcome to the summer series of the Words You Should Know podcast, where no, I'm not going to go into the etymology of summer, dog days, and solstice. Been there, done that. But instead, we'll revisit the story stop tour events of earlier this year and popular episodes you may have missed from years past. This will be a seven-episode break, with new episodes resuming on Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. What are my story stops? Imagine a program where you take a pause in your life to consider the stories that have shaped you into who you are. That's what my third book, The Family Story Workbook, is all about. And at my Story Stop events, I've been honored to hear the stories of talented authors, poets, and wordsmiths as they dive into their memories and invite you to dive into yours. You can learn more about these events at storystoptour.com. And now, let me welcome you to the encore of Story Stop Writing, Editing, and Personal Perspectives, originally held on March 19th, 2021, and now replayed for you here on the Words You Should Know podcast. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I am Chris Bizak. I am an author and an editor who is on a mission to empower each and every one of us through our communications, through our stories, and through all of the stories that surround us. And I am so excited to be here today with some fabulous guests to be diving into the power of our stories, the power of our tales, whether we are sitting around a dinner table, whether we are whispering to a child at bedtime, whether we are capturing a diary or a journal or however we want to capture our tales. So thank you for joining me today. There's such a power in truth. Even there's such a power in exaggerations and big fish tales. Now, my question to you as we're getting started here is what makes a powerful story? That's a question we're going to dive into today. And for those of you who are following along on Twitter, on Periscope, on Facebook, feel free to share the discussion as we're going. And also know that as we are going along, if you have a question or a comment or uh, applause or whatever it is, as you're following along with this, feel free to put this into the comments and I will actually bring it up to elevate it to our video. So if you have a question, an answer to that question of what is it that makes a powerful story? Out it on out, we'll elevate that. Now, where does this whole concept of story stop events come from? This is story stop writing, editing, and personal perspectives. And today we have some wonderful guest authors who I'll introduce you to in a moment because we all have a story to tell. You don't have to be someone who has their name involved with a history book to have a story. Each of us do. Now, as an author, I've written a few books about writing and editing and that kind of thing. But the the book that kicked all of this out is the Family Story Workbook, because sometimes we have those stories that we don't want to lose. Those stories of past generations, those stories of our childhood. We have so many stories inside of us. And you don't have to be a writer, quote unquote, to share these stories. Now, one story that really got this moving for me is when I was a kid. I don't even remember how old I was the first time I heard this story, but it came up so many times in my childhood and I wanted to share it quickly with you before we got started. I will start once upon a time. I had a grandfather and my grandfather was a soldier in the Ukrainian army during World War II and he was in a camp. Now, when he was trapped in this camp, he and a couple of his buddies found a way 
to actually escape from this camp. But to escape, they had to wander across mountains. They had minimal supplies. They found themselves for weeks eating grass, eating bark, eating anything they could just to survive, to get through this moment. There's this story that is the one that I always think of when I think about my grandfather somehow enduring this adventure of survival about when he came upon an empty camp where it had been completely deserted from a different army. And they found this old pot of soup in a deserted kitchen. And this pot of soup was weeks old. It had mold on the top of it. There were flies buzzing everywhere around it, but they had not eaten in days. And they pushed it all aside. They found something to eat. Their stomachs were upset, of course, but they had food. They had nourishment. They found a way to survive. And I've been hearing stories like this. We've all been hearing stories from our ancestors forever, and we need to preserve them in some way. But then there's the matter of how. How do we preserve it? For me, I know I've gone into poetry, gone into fiction, I've gone into nonfiction. But how about you? How do you want to preserve your stories? That's where we're going today. And first, I would like to introduce our wonderful event guests. I'm going to bring everybody up onto screen here with me. So everyone has a moment to introduce themselves. Hello, Karen. Hello, Rita. If you hey. both just Hi. take a moment to introduce yourselves to our audience here today. Karen, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm Karen Weiberg. And I am with ClearSight Books, that's my business, and I help usually seasoned business leaders who are writing nonfiction books, so personal development, leadership, those types of things, a little bit of memoir and biography. I, I help them either with editing, with ghostwriting, or with coaching, and I've been doing that for about five years, and I just, once I figured out that books were the thing I was supposed to do, I just went full force on it. So I'm really happy to be here talking stories today. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen and Rita. Hey there, I am Rita Lewis. I'm a freelance writer and I have been for many years. I've written for newspapers and magazines. I've been a grant writer. I've written all kinds of things. And right now I write copy for content marketing, which is basically storytelling for companies. I'm also an editor. I started my career that way and I'm a poet. I write mostly narrative poetry, which is um, you know, concentrating on personal stories. And appropriate to today, I'm a lifelong collector of family stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Stories surround us, again, whether it's our careers or not. And I love that piece of what you're up to, Rita. That's just fascinating to me, and I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about it. As we're kicking off today's event, I would love to kind of get behind the scenes of the writer and editor's life with you two. And I was wondering, um, we'll go the opposite order this time, Rita, we can start with you. If you could share perhaps a moment from your own life that has shaped maybe the storyteller, the poet, the editor, the writer, who you are. Right. I think the thing that shaped me most as a writer, editor, poet, was an entire childhood of listening to family stories on the front porch. Every summer, no TV, no internet, just stories. I came from a long line of Appalachian storytellers and I can tell you that the ability is not inherited, it is learned. I learned on that front porch to pay attention to four things. And I thought about this when Chris invited us to speak. 
Now, let me illustrate with a story. This is one I heard multiple times as a child and an adult, my father's story about the day the Japanese surrendered, the last day of World War II, another World War II story. He was on the tarmac in India, ready to be flown into China for a mission with his fellow scouts and raiders, and they were precursors of the Navy SEALs. That mission, he learned later, would have ended in disaster because they had bad intelligence. They all would have died. But the story had a good ending. The war ended as they were standing on the tarmac because the Japanese surrendered. He did a great job with oral storytelling. We have him on tape and I would not change a thing about the way he told that story. He learned his lessons on the front porch too. But I thought about as an editor, if I were to retell his story from maybe print, I'd pay attention to those four things I learned on the front porch. One, the story itself, the facts, chronology, narrative. I wouldn't have to do much here. He was very good at narrative flow. He would take side trips, but he'd always come back to the backbone of the story. He was great at colorful details about the scene on the tarmac, what they were wearing. The second thing I'd pay attention to is the storyteller. In this case, what I knew about my father and what I found out later, how he came to be part of Scouts and Raiders, which is a story in and of itself, his background with engineering and explosives, um, very helpful in his line of work, and the nightmares he suffered later in life about the war. I found out many veterans have those nightmares. And the third thing I'd pay attention to is what is not in the story. I might add statistics and facts about World War II, do a little research, the history of scouts and raiders. There's a very cool Navy SEAL museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, where these young men trained so many years ago. Last but not least, I pay attention to the resonance of the story. What makes this story ring beyond its telling? Why tell this story? In this case, it contributes to World War II stories with a personal anecdote, uh, celebrates a loved one's contributions to the war, it salutes patriotism and service and personal sacrifice. So this story is really rich with lots of possibilities. But even with smaller stories, I pay attention to these four things. When I'm writing poetry, when I'm editing, when I'm writing a blog post for a client, I pay attention to the story itself, the what, the when, the where, include what contributes to the story and ditch what doesn't. That is very hard. I pay attention to the who of the story, the storyteller, their voice, their perspective, and the other who, the audience. Who is this story intended for? What tone do you need to use for this audience? What do you need to bring forward for them? I'd listen to what's not in the story, missing details, background, maybe somehow how the storyteller got in this situation. And last but not least, I'd listen for the resonance. Why does this story matter? What's your purpose in telling it? Is it to share information, to inspire others, to educate potential business customers, all of the above? What makes this story ring for your audience? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I love that of lessons learned in storytelling on front porches because where else do we learn our stories from our family and friends who gather around us when we're kids who speak and tell. And again, storytelling is not this complex science that you need to necessarily study and have an English major to become 
a storyteller, someone who can just captivate with the yarns that you spin. I love that, Rita. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you had a beautiful breakdown of those four ideas, which are true for the oral storytellers as much as the written storytellers. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Karen, I'm gonna bring this right back over to you with the exact same question. Now, what is a moment from your life or something that you have learned that has shaped who you have been as a storyteller, a poet, an editor, a ghostwriter, and everything that makes up your fabulous career? Yeah, I love I love listening to Rita and her analysis of the story and how it broke down. And my theme, I think I that I was coming to with this question was how one event can have so many tendrils that it can have so many influences on your life. And the, the one singular event for me that has had that type of influence is when I was about 23 years old, my father was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And that just sort of set a, an unusual trajectory for me, I think. I ended up moving home and I, I spent a long time at home living with him and my mother and my siblings were in and out at various times. And uh, then he was moved to a nursing home and I spent a long time, many years visiting him at the nursing home. So this was kind of an unusual setting for a 20 something, you know, imagine, imagine when you were 23 and dealing with that. So it was a, an unusual experience and it, it took me a lot of different directions. Um, one of the things that happened when I was at home was that my mother got me interested in poetry. She was involved in the Des Moines National Poetry Festival and through that, I got to meet a lot of really well-known poets and hear them speak and hear them read their poetry. And I think that that was really what did it for me to begin to understand and appreciate poetry was the oral um, element of that more than just being on the page, hearing, hearing everything. So that, of course, led me into writing some of my own poetry. But being at home with my father also, I... I didn't intend to stay quite as long as I did uh, coming back home. So I started working as a temp and my temp job actually led into my corporate career. And so I was in a corporate job for about 10 years where I did a ton of technical writing and business writing. And I you know, wrote business requirements for IT systems and analytical reports and strategic planning documents types of writing that require a lot of precision and clarity. Um, and being in the corporate world, I thought, oh, I'll just do an MBA while I'm there. And so I did that for technical and business writing. But I also took a lot of creative writing classes since I had discovered that love of poetry. Um, so with all of that background in the corporate world, that type of writing and my my nonfiction writing and editing style has really leaned towards clarity first. The very first thing I look at is, can a reader understand what this piece of writing is saying? If they can't understand it from just a logical standpoint, they're going to disengage. They're just gonna stop reading. So when I even teach business writing workshops, I say, clarity over beauty. You have to make sure it's understandable. If you have time and the skill to make it beautiful language as well, great, do it. But make sure your reader gets it. Um, so a lot of times when I edit somebody's work, a client's work, they look at it and they're like, oh, it still sounds like me, just better. And that's because I'm looking at how do I take their ideas 
and simply clarify them. That's all I'm trying to do, not change them. In terms of my poetry style, I think the business writing and technical writing has had an influence there as well. It tends to lean towards clean and straightforward, pretty clear and descriptive. And I would compare that to Rita. I have the pleasure of being in a poetry critique group with her as well. And Rita uses a lot more imagery and metaphor in poetry than I do. And, you know, I kind of aspire to that. But my, my background is so heavy on the clear uh, writing that that's where I, that's where I land. The, the experience of living with someone with Alzheimer's and the whole family experience that I had, of course, that also gives me ample content to work with, lots of material for poems, and of course, uh, has made it into many poems. And um, some of them, some of them, uh, kind of emotional, you know, even when you're clear and leave things out there for the reader to interpret it, it can be quite uh, stark and intense at times. Um, one of the other things that happened by virtue of being at home through this experience was I ran across this book of uh, about haiku that was my grandmother's. And it was a book from the 1950s. So it had some of these really sort of, I'm gonna call it old fashioned translations, like using rhyme. And now haiku doesn't usually use rhyme, but it sort of grew on me over time. And I started playing with haiku. And my husband and I in recent years have had chickens in our backyard. And I started writing haiku about chickens because this rhyming haiku with the chickens was just amusing to me. And eventually that even turned into a book with an artist colleague that uh, is called Chicken Haiku. Enough, let's see if I can get my camera here. Uh, but it's so funny to think all of that sort of tied back to my father's Alzheimer's diagnosis and the path that that has taken me on. And I, it makes me wonder sometimes where I would have been if that hadn't happened. Would I have been a writer? I don't know. Would I have gotten to the path earlier? Would I have gotten there later? But I figure whatever path you take, it's, it's contributing to who you are and how you operate in the world, no matter what you do. So that's my story. That's absolutely lovely. Thank you very much, Karin. I'm seeing some comments popping in here, um, really enjoying both of your stories. So. That's fabulous. Now, again, you guys are telling us sort of a little bit of the behind the scenes of your own lives. And when someone is deciding to tell the story of their own life or the story of a family story, um, again, I have to, sorry, guys, whether they are using the family story workbook <laughs> for this process or not. I have, oh, <laughs> but when they're going through this process, both of you told really vivid details. And Rita, you were talking about the story of the specifics of being on the tarmac at the end of the war. How do you talk to folks about getting to those specifics? Because we know we need to tell a specific story, but how does a storyteller or a writer tap into the specific details that make something come alive? Hmm. Well, well, I love answering your question that <laughs> crickets, crickets. crickets. <laughs> yeah, sorry. As a specific question, uh, you'll get there eventually. Um, you have to find your way into the story first, and then you can fill in the details. I don't know, for me, it's kind of a flow thing. You could start with a detail, 
it's, it's very important how you start the story. You need a hook to hook your audience in. And I, uh, my dad did not start the story that way. I think he started in the middle, as a matter of fact. But you do eventually get to the details. I, I don't think they should trip you up with getting there. You, get, you gather them. As a researcher, you know, I'm constantly researching things for my writing. I've got all my details on a separate sheet of paper sometimes, and I work them in as I go. I decide on the narrative flow, and then I start plugging in details. That's how I do it. Thank you. Karin, anything to add about yeah. the richness of story? Yeah, I, I agree with Rita about collecting details. And even one of the ways to think about um, trigger to trigger ideas for a poem, for a story, whatever it is, is to just capture concrete sensory details. And I love one of your questions in your book, Chris, was like, think of a piece of clothing and, you know, that you loved when you were growing up. You know, that is a super, super specific, concrete thing that you can think about, write about. Oh, I had those white jeans with the flare at the bottom and the variegated, you know, thread that was, um, embroidered on it and I love those and that sort of concrete detail takes you into more concrete detail and evokes ideas and it doesn't have to be just visual like smell is one of the most evocative things to bring up memories so if you're thinking about if you want to do this think about smells and sounds and things like that that uh, concrete sensory details that trigger ideas and stories. Absolutely, yeah. and I love that advice because people so often want to focus on just what did it look like? What was around me? What was there? Mm -hmm. But thinking about the sounds and the smells, because don't you love that statistic or the fact that our noses have the best memory out of all yeah. of our senses? Yeah. And smells are so evocative for yeah. us. Yeah, it's And true. it's true, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. Just think and, about, you know, whatever it's a roasting turkey or a baking apple pie or whatever, you know, thing that your family had during the holidays to eat, you know, so whatever holiday it might be. What does that smell evoke for you? Absolutely. I think I was taking a hike the other day and I was walking through the woods and this smell hit me and I was taken back to being at camp in West Virginia when I was mm -hmm. what like 13 years old and I still have no idea what that smell was but I was taken yeah. to such a specific yeah. time and place by just the smell of something that's such a great tip to think about those sensory yeah. details when you're capturing your memory and right. Rita you had said something else that I want to return back to you said mm -hmm. you have to think about your entry point you have to think about your hook. Again, whether we're writing our memoirs or our life stories, or whether you are just telling a story around the dinner table, what makes a good intro? What makes a good hook to you? Well, it's something that draws the listener or the reader in immediately. And I find my hooks in the middle of the night. I'm one of these, I wake up in the middle of the night and I keep a pad by my bed and I, I write it down, but it has to make sense. And there are a number of uh, tricks to f come up with a hook. You can, you know, in a nonfiction story, you could come up with a surprising detail, a scenario. You could start with the end, which my relatives often did, and everybody's going. And then they then they go back and they start at the beginning and go, oh, well, I have to stay here now and listen <laughs> until they get to the end. 
So there are a number of techniques you could use. I don't know if you cover that in your book. I'm sorry, I didn't have a chance to get it. Oh, no, no, no. This is, yeah, definitely not focused just on my book. And my book yeah. is more prompts than techniques. So that's why I love diving into these questions, these discussions. And that whole idea of starting with the end. I mean, Shakespeare did it. So why can't we, right? When Romeo and Juliet yeah. begin, we know that the lovers will die in the very beginning. Yeah. And then we go into the story and all of a sudden, whether you are a Renaissance audience standing in the floor of the Globe Theater or yeah. whether you are someone of today, you have that moment of, wait, hey. what? And uh, suddenly we're on the edge of our seats, whether we're on that front Appalachian porch or whether we are reading it. Uh, Karin, do you have right. any, any tips on hooks? Um, and I also want to jump back um, with this, talk about nonfiction, talk about poetry. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I have good tips for hooks. Oh, that's fine. I feel like I feel like they're not my strength. I have to get feedback so that sometimes I know. I, I guess here's my tip: is don't be afraid to just start writing your story. You don't have to know what the hook is when you start writing, because that's what revision and editing are for: is to to find the most effective entry point. So for me, it takes a long time and iterations to, to get to the right entry point. Like, I, I just don't know where it is usually. My husband, on the other hand, is actually really good at it. And he's good at finding surprising, surprising statements to make to get into an unusual topic. Right. Right. Yeah. Again, it's not necessarily, I don't actually know what your husband does, but it's not necessarily just the wordsmiths among us who can practice yeah. this art. This yeah. is just a, a human yeah. art. So here's a, here's yeah. just a, for instance, he's a, he's a scientist, was talking about potatoes somewhere at a, at a conference. Well, he started his, he started his speech, his talk about this technical subject with a poem about potatoes from uh Who's the poet that it would be? The potato eaters. That's a painting. Well, sorry, <laughs> I'm blanking out on the poet's name. Somebody will know it. I saw Cheryl in the audience. She'll know it. <laughs> anyway, it was Seamus. Seamus Heaney. Seamus Heaney. Someone will get it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he he was like, "What a great hook for a bunch of scientists in an audience to hear something like poetry when they're expecting a technical talk." Catches their attention. Yeah, it's really disorienting. I think that's yes. that the thing I <laughs> usually go for is disorient the person who's picking it up. You know, surprise them in some way. It doesn't have to be shocking, but just oh, yeah, like a pattern yeah. interrupt. Like giving yeah. them a pattern interrupt, that's shaking it. them out of their their da that they're in. Yeah, yeah. their daily. I lives. love that. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love that because you don't think when you're thinking about writing tips, when you're thinking about storytelling, when you uh, when you're putting together this whole idea of disorient them. At first, my reaction is, wait, you wouldn't want to do that. You don't want to confuse them. But then you bring a potato poem into a scientific conference yeah. and you have everyone hooked. So that's yeah. one advice. Oh, that's great. Now, how is captivating people, hooking people in poetry different from perhaps in a freelance piece that you might be working on, Rita, or in something that you might be ghostwriting in the nonfiction world, Karen? Oh boy, you go first, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no difference at all. <laughs> there's, uh, you know, there's an interesting thing about 
poetry and other forms of writing. So I, I, I go back to what I started with in some of my early comments about clarity. I do think it's important to understand what's happening in a poem, at least at one level. The difference with poetry is that there always can be some sort of mystery as well. Like you need to understand it intellectually what's happening, but you may not intellectually understand everything, but you kind of need to be able to understand it at a heart level or a musical level. Like there's something else to it. And I do think that part of poetry is you can have deeper and deeper layers and do close readings to find more and more. I and mean, not that you can't do that with other forms of writing, but I think a little mystery is a little more acceptable in poetry than it would be in a lot of the nonfiction that I work on. Uh, I don't want anybody wondering what I meant by that. And I don't get to sit right beside them as they read it to explain that, oh no, this is what I really meant. <laughs> so, but you know, everybody brings something to it. And especially with poetry, I think we want people to bring their experience to their interpretation. Right. Absolutely. Rita, what would you say? Uh, I would echo you and I'll just, I thought about this before we came on air. You asked how is capturing your reality in poetry different from other forms of writing? It's different in process and in craft, mm -hmm. I think. In process, intuitive leaps are allowed, not only allowed, but they're welcome in poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, say something you see at the grocery store and something that happened to your sister as a child. You've made that connection somewhere in your memory and in your brain, and there is a connection. That moment shines for you, so it's, it's got some truth behind it. Poetry is very reflective. It's almost meditative. I completely lose track of time when I'm writing poetry. I'd love to just sit there all morning and do it. It's very image-based because your memory has images. Even the smells, it's, it's images in your senses. The craft, the language is so much more condensed. So the editing process is really ruthless. Mm -hmm. I went through 31 drafts to get to a final poem and Karen's smiling because she helped, I me. Know. She helped awesome. me get to that final poem. But I mean, I like maybe changed one word for a draft or, you know, some, but it, every word counts. It's very iterative. You just yeah. do it again and again, and you just try and feel your way through it. So it's a lot more touchy feely with poetry, I think. Although no, it does have to make sense. It does have to make sense. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny how you really can, when you get into the weeds of especially poetry, but no matter what it is that one's writing, how much time you could spend on a single paragraph, on a single sentence, on a single word, just to find the right word. And I was wondering if either of you had any advice on that, whether, again, no matter what it is that you happen to be speaking or telling, how do you find the word that evokes the right fits, the feel, the mood, the action. Do you have any tricks? Do you have thesauruses lined up all around you? Do you um, rely on the muse in the middle of the night, Rita? Um, do you have any advice on word hunting? Dictionary and thesaurus, mm -hmm. really. Um, I use it heavily. Mm -hmm. Cause I can tell if it's not the right word and I'm kind of circling around it. And I just, I just keep trying until I really find something that, and English is, has a huge vocabulary. So we have no excuse not to find the right word in this language. What were you gonna say, Karen? 
I was going to say, I noticed, I was looking at one of Rita's, those 31 drafts just recently, and I know she does this and I do it too, is we're looking up those words. When we know a word isn't quite right, we look it up and we, we, we note down every single word that we find that is a possibility. And then we start playing with it yes. <laughs> and putting in different versions. Um, and that's one way to find the right word. But the other thing I think sometimes you have to do is um, not go to the thesaurus because sometimes you get yourself caught in a particular meaning of a word and you need to find a more imagistic version of it. So I'll give you an example. Rita had, Rita, I, this is top of mind, Rita. Okay. You had you had in this poem that you were working on, you were describing like students that were like rushing around between class. So instead of saying rushing, she had them beetling. Like you would never find beetle as a in the thesaurus as a synonym for rush. Okay. Yeah, would you wouldn't find that. So she like create she like shifted to what's the idea of this sort of scuttling around and what kind of interesting word could represent that? Taking a, a noun and turning it into a verb. So that's yes, thesaurus, but also don't limit yourself to that. Absolutely. Agree. <laughs> I think that idea of having the notebook beside your bed is so very useful. Although I don't always understand what my notes mean the next morning. I, <laughs> instead of always having a notebook, I often have my cell phone and then I just like click something into a text, not a text, into um, something in a text application um, on my phone. And the next day it's like autocorrected something to it. That's at least what I say. Maybe oh, no. it makes perfect sense at 2 a.m. But I like to think that autocorrect is what's making me not understand some of those messages. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So why do you think, as we're starting to wrap up a little bit here, what is the value of story? And I'm not just thinking for those who are feeling impassioned and creative and who've always wanted to write the next great American novel or who've always wanted to write their poetry. What is the value of story for all of us in both of your opinions? Why does this matter? Why does this make us human? What do you think? I think it's, sorry, Karen. No, go ahead. Just one word, connection. That's what I think. It's connection to maybe yourself, connection to truth, connection to other people, connection to an experience. It's a way of our brains to connect and make, you know, connect the dots. I don't know how else to put it. Karen, what were you gonna mm -hmm. say? Yeah, I would agree about the connection. And I, I feel like sometimes even any little poem I write, it's kind of almost a way for the reader who understands it. It's it's the author's way of saying, I see you, reader. I, I understand you. And it's a across the distance is kind of connecting the writer and the reader. Um, the other thing that that I would say, um, it can be very empowering to write your stories in whatever form they are. And I love that you in your book, Chris, you had several questions that ask people to think about things that are uncomfortable. Like, when were you scared? When when did you feel challenged? When were you in an angry relationship? You know, whatever it might have been. Because those painful memories are probably the place that are gonna generate the most valuable content in some way. Like, they're the most important things to touch on. They make you feel vulnerable, but they're important. And if you're feeling 
like you're pushing something away, you probably need to go explore it. So it's almost a form of therapy in right. that way. I'm now, a big believer in that. Yeah, no, it totally is. And getting that on the page, that process itself, whether you do anything else with it, that process will help you get through some difficult emotions. And that in and of itself is going to be empowering as a person. Now, the craft of writing is where you have to focus if you want to take that process and that content and create something that other people are really going to want to read. If that makes sense. Like I can throw my, <laughs> throw my, <laughs> I got plenty of, plenty of head junk up here. I can throw on the page. Nobody's going to want to read it. It has to be turned into something. I think that other people will want to appreciate. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. And I feel like, especially after the past 12 months, and I could probably say 12 months to the week at this point that we have lived through that idea of connection, Rita, that idea of communicating and letting someone see who we are inside mm -hmm. of us. I mean, reading is crawling into the author's brain wrinkles, yeah. whether we want to admit it yeah. or not, no matter what it is. Yeah. Um, that's why I just feel always overjoyed in my work. And of course I'm a fiction editor, but even in fiction editing, there's such a relationship formed between the writer and the reader and all of those pieces. It's empowering for all of us. Now, as we're coming together here, both of you are just so involved with your local community, um, whether it is in writing groups or bookstores. And I was wondering if you all had some resources you were thinking about um, that you could refer people to saying, here is a great community um, that can really empower your storytelling. Do either of you have ideas on that? Well, Karen and I know a lot of the same people and we're in some of the same communities. Yeah. We're even in a four person poetry group together. Uh, but I am currently addicted to listening to storytelling podcasts. I just can't get enough of them because people come on, you know, like The Moth or StoryCorps. People come on, tell their story. It's five minutes long and you just get to, wow. you know. <laughs> and they practiced it before they went on. But they're, you know, you learn a lot about craft from that. Absolutely. You know, the other thing to, to your point about practicing, Rita, mm -hmm. Telling stories you know, orally is, it does take practice. And so there are definitely places you can go to get practice, like Toastmasters. Rita and I have both been members of Toastmasters, where you can be in front of a live audience and get feedback from them. And there's plenty of other, you know, meetups and things like that. You can find groups all over that let you practice your, your storytelling. And if I may interrupt um, on that one, my next virtual story stop that I'm going to be doing here live on social media is actually focused on a group of Toastmasters from across the country. Oh, awesome. So it is Story Stop, enter the Toastmasters on April 9th. So stay tuned for that, everyone who yeah. is with us. Excellent. Yeah, make sure we know about that one. We'll share the word on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was just going to say, there's also a lot of writing groups. Like we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, the Triangle Association of Freelancers is one that we're both part of. And Chris, I know you've spoken with them before and spoken That's at the conference, amazing. which is how we met. And so that was that was great. And then the North Carolina Writers Network is statewide. Um, so that one I would definitely take a look at. Um, if you are in the triad, there's the Burlington Writers Club and the Winston-Salem Writers. So there's plenty of places that you can go to find Find your peeps. You know, I have some other writers to 
bounce ideas off with and just have that community and connection with. Absolutely. And I'm just full of shout outs here today. And speaking of the Winston-Salem writers in April, I'm actually doing an editing workshop um, virtual with the Winston-Salem writers. Um, and I should have awesome. that off the top of my head. I'll stick that into the chat after we are all done. Awesome. Um, so thank you very much um, for that. Um, I just feel so honored to be able to have conversations with you all because when we have these conversations, we can just learn a little bit about you all, learn a little bit about ourselves, think about the stories that make us who we are, because it's true, when we write our stories, when we tell our stories, it helps other people understand us, but it helps us understand ourselves just as much. So I wanted to thank you all for joining us today. Now, if anyone in the audience is really interested in diving into writing tips and trivia and storytelling empowerments, um, I invite you to um, look on my website, not only for my books that are for sale um, there, but also for my newsletter. And I have a really fun podcast. I know I'm biased on that, a fun bias, um, <laughs> podcast on writing tips, trivia, communications, and just communications news because we live in a moment where even the English language is changing and how we use it is changing. So stay tuned for all of that um, and you can check it all out on my website. Thank you again. Any final words, Rita or Karen? Thanks this, for having us. It's yeah. Great. It's fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's Fabulous. been a lot of fun and I would definitely recommend checking out I have all three of Chris's books. <laughs> uh, definitely check them out. There's a lot of good tips for writers of all of all types. Well, thank you so much, everyone. And have a good time writing whatever your stories happen to be. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Are you curious or confused about the words you use every day? For more information on language news, trivia tips, and explorations, I invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter at getagripponyourgrammar.com. That's also a great place for free downloads and to learn more about my books, Get a Grip on Your Grammar, the Novel Editing Workbook, and the Family Story Workbook. Thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to review or rate this podcast. And if you haven't, why don't you just head over to wherever you listen and do so. I am so grateful for it. And as always, I invite you to share your latest writing updates or insights with me. I love hearing from you. Again, you can connect at getagripponyourgrammar.com. Until next time. Words. Language. Communication. We've got this.